0: Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. John Grayson, Daniel Medina here, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. So glad you could spend some time with us this afternoon. And I sure hope that you are watching the Olympics. I have to tell you, I really enjoy the Olympics. And it's funny, I always forget about them until they show up again. And then I can't turn them off. I mean, it's not about the sport for me. It's about the effort, the authenticity, the practice, uh, Women. Swimmers starting at age six, a thousand meters a week at age six, 10,000 a week at age eight. I mean, these people live for this, okay? And to see them go through their uh, emotions and the experience, I just find it fascinating. And I find it very, very inspirational. Again, irrespective of the sport, some of them I understand, most of many, some of them I don't. But uh, the Olympics uh, committee keeps changing it up, right? They'll take some off. They'll add some like street skating. Really? That's a sport now? Okay. Uh, but look at these 15-year-olds. They're just putting their hearts out. And, and that's the thing. It's always good, I think, to see people who really have their hearts in the job that they're trying to accomplish. And, and, and that, to me, is, is a remarkable thing. So I hope you're enjoying it. and I guess we've got another week to go. So we're going to do what we do, and that's try to help you be prepared for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. And as you know, we talk about the markets. We kind of give you a little uh, perspective as to what we're looking at. And we also get questions about things like, if you're not going to live in the U.S., where should you live? So we'll tackle that. We're going to spend the most time, though, with uh, what's going on with this deadly, dangerous Delta virus. I mean, uh, we're going to look at it from the standpoint of color. We're going to talk about masking. But please understand, opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody has a belly button and everybody has an opinion. What you and I want is not just some opinion that somebody picked up, either out of their head or out of somebody else's head. We want to go to the best and the brightest. So we're going to tackle this situation as far as the Delta virus is concerned, the coronavirus in general, because you, as we do, you have people you really care for. You love them as much as the world is round. And some of them just won't get vaccinated. Not, it blows my mind, frankly. I don't care who it is. I'm going, you must be crazy. You're enormous, enormously selfish. And, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what you think. So instead of us getting into an argument about what you think versus what I think, and of course, I'm smarter than you, and I know more than you, and you should just listen to what I have to say, how about we turn to the experts instead of getting into that ring and boxing it out? Because that's not going to be pleasant, and probably nothing's going to be learned, and certainly no behavior is going to be improved. So we have on deck two great folks who, this is what they do. This is their specialty. One holds a PhD in clinical research, his name is Richard Beswick, he'll be in the second segment, and he happens to be vice president for research and chief research officer at Cottage Health in Santa Barbara. This is what he does, research, right? So we want to hear what he has to say from his perspective firsthand. And then his colleague also at Cottage Health, Lynn Fitzgibbons, MD, is a infectious disease expert this is all she does 24 7. so we want to know what's scaring you what's going on here and what should we do to keep our assets safe whether we're talking about our financial assets or our physical assets we want you to survive and thrive whether it's market disruptions or healthcare challenges we want you to be able to tell your story so we'll get into that in our second segment but let's talk about the dow the s p and the nasdaq and then we'll talk about the, where we see that things look interesting from this standpoint. if you don't want to live here, where else might you want to live outside of the US? This uh, day has been interesting because we saw recently that the Hang Seng dropped 4% on Monday and US stock markets indexes closed at record highs. At the same time, the markets enjoyed a good run since last Monday with the S&P up, up nearly 4% a week later. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week because we think that there may be some signs coming from China that um, will um, show up here. And so we wanna see in advance what's going on there, because as I am fond of saying to you, we all drink the same water, we breathe the same air, and we fly the same airplane. So we might think we're on this island called the United States of America, we're all attached, separated by water, but we're drinking that water, okay? And we're all trying to get along as best we can. Year to date, that's of course, meaning January one through today, with the market closing in about 52 minutes, we see the market has been mostly in red for the day, but it has come back some, more as closely as we have starting at 6.30 Pacific time this morning. But year-to-date, great numbers, 14.1%. That's a, that's a January 1 through today, year-to-date number through actually yesterday, the market being up about 67 points so far today. But those are great annualized numbers and we were talking to uh, a referral who says he's flat for the year, which is hard to imagine how one might accomplish that. But when we look at the S&P 500, which is probably a better barometer, if you will, because now we're talking about the 500 largest companies in the country for the most part, it's actually seeing a slight uptick, uh, about six points up. uh, Year-to-date, nearly 17%, exactly 16.97, again, January 1 through today or yesterday. Those are excellent numbers, again, for the entire year. And then NASDAQ, wow, having a very nice day, positive 115 points. That, of course, is tech stocks NASDAQ represents. And year-to-date, the return is 14.11%. So, again, all good numbers. But as we are fond of saying, please do not take your eye off the ball. Please do not be complacent and go, oh, just see, if it's up 14% so far this year, that means it'll double by the end of the year. Please do not think that. You've got to keep your eye on the ball because this could turn around so that it's minus 14%. And that's what we're worried about. The people that we have the pleasure of working with, we call them savvy investors. They worry more about market losses than they do enjoy market gains so as far as we're concerned we're not going to just leave you and your money on the roller coaster and say have a nice ride when you're scared out of your seat we want the money sitting off to the sidelines when things get nasty as best we can so that you can limit your losses as opposed to go down like the titanic and never see light at the end of the day we want you to limit those losses but you have to discover how bad it has been in your experience and are you willing to go through that kind of scenario again Or are you willing to look at putting together a different portfolio that moves your money by design to perform within your risk of loss parameters? In other words, if the market's off 35% and your account's off 8 is that okay? That's a question. We don't have an answer for you, but we don't want you to go down like the Titanic or sit on the roller coaster if that ride is too volatile for you. We want you to do what you can to limit your losses, and people need to see what those things look like in advance as opposed to after the fact. So Daniel, you found a couple of sources. One, we've we've used before International Living and also Investopedia has the same scoring, but they're looking at like the five, 10 top countries for retirement living. And some of these countries are quite surprising. Who do you see as the top five and one?
2: Well, I love this this list because something we talk about a lot is people for the most part don't plan. And if you're not actively planning, how you're going to live in retirement, you're going to be forced to do something drastic, like maybe move out of the country. And as we're going down this list, it's I, I think it's actually really interesting to note that a lot of these countries don't want you if you don't have some retirement income and some retirement savings, they make that requirement for their visas. So hmm. I think that's fascinating. They don't want you they don't want, it,
1: they don't want poor people. You. They have
2: they enough poor people. <laughs> That's right. So to get to get these visas, you have to qualify financially. And that means a retirement income stream or qualifying in, in terms of how much assets you have. But a lot of them, they, they have those requirements. So it's really interesting. So some of, the, some of the things that qualify to get on this list is ease of buying property, cost of renting, cost of living, uh, discounts on health care and, and, and entertainment, uh, how easy it is to get, get a visa. Um, making friends, entertainment amenities, healthy living style, the climate. So there's a lot of things that go into making this list. And number one on this list is Costa Rica. Hmm.
1: Very now they have an interesting scoring system. They're looking at a variety of factors, right? Renting, cost of living, healthy living, and climate. And Costa Costa Rica is at the top. That kind of surprising, I think, to most people. Yeah. What do you think I, there.
2: Well, it's from what I've, from what pictures that I've seen, I've not been, but it's a beautiful place and great. If you're looking at a healthy lifestyle, um, and, and a good healthcare system. Interesting.
1: And no shortage of things to see and do. It's not the desert.
2: No shortage of things to see and see and do. No, it's, it's a beautiful place, to, beautiful place to be affordable and lots of things to do. Number two,
1: yeah, well, they score, real quickly, before you go to two, what, what do they look at, uh, how do they score in terms of what, they were looking at 25 countries, looking at the cost of living in, in Costa Rica, uh, how did they score relative to others?
2: Well, out of 25 countries, Costa Rica scored 84 in housing, I'm oh, sorry, 84 on cost of living and 74 on housing. I believe it's out of a scale of 100. Okay, so the higher
1: number, the better. Yes. Great. Who's second?
2: <laughs> Panama. They have more than just a canal, apparently (laughs) beautiful mountains, beaches, and lots, lots again, great cost of living. Um, It's, you can live there inexpensively. And one of the interesting things is that you can get a pensioner's visa that gives you discounts on things like power bill, uh, restaurants, medication. uh, But you need to have a a pension of at least a thousand dollars a month to qualify for the pensioner's visa.
1: Interesting, low number, but who has a pension anymore? Not that many people.
2: Not nearly as many as they used to be. Number three well, on the list.
1: Well, Mexico. real quick, Daniel, I mean, cause one of the things that we've talked about with colleagues, for example, in Kentucky, where we're looking at the disparity for housing costs in California versus Kentucky, obviously it's lower in Kentucky. But one of the things that I've always been surprised by is to hear from our colleagues, who we'll talk about their power bills. the 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 electricity and and the gas bills what do you see in in Panama in Panama in terms of cost it's it's, everything's
2: cheaper Mm. everything is cheaper and like I said if you're if you get the pension or visa then you get you get discounts on all that 25 percent off your power bill as an example
1: okay where's number three looking at uh the top three when we get to the top five Mexico Ah, everybody in California has been to Mexico, but they're number three out of 25 countries. It's
2: kind of surprising. Kind of a
1: rustic yeah. feel.
2: Yeah, rustic. And, and they're, 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 they're got a lot of amenities. And it's great for people that need to come, that need to be close to the U.S. Um, I, I know this from personal experience of coming back and forth to visit family. My parents do that because they're uh, in Mexico part time.
1: Well, in fact, your family owns some property. There several properties there. Is that right?
2: Uh, my dad does, yeah.
1: So okay. they're
2: happy to go back and
1: forth. <laughs> and you can get a temporary resident visa? That's good for how long?
2: Four years or so? Four years, I believe. You have to reapply every four years.
1: But you have to, like you were saying, meet minimum monthly income or asset requirements by or by owning property in Mexico.
2: Yeah, I believe everyone on this, every one of these, at least the top five, you need uh, some kind of income or assets to qualify for the visa.
1: Now, these states have been, uh, the five states in Mexico have been marked by the State Department uh, places to not travel with another 11 designated reconsidering 14 singled out to be extra cautious so Mexico is some, it continues to be a place that you need to choose carefully. And, and I think it would be helpful to make friends there because they're gonna give you good guidance.
2: That's probably, probably pretty damn good advice. I believe those are the Northern states and that's a really drug, drug cartel ah. land that you gotta stay away from. Okay. Number four. Colombia. Columbia, Columbia. Okay. Uh, not a place I would think to go but apparently also really good cost of living. Lots of flights to and from Florida nonstop. Uh, re- retirement visa can be attained. If you, again, you have to prove retirement fund. You have the retirement funds, so you got to renew it every three years though. When
1: well, they have a great rainforest and having spent a little time in Argentina and Brazil, uh, the rainforests are just fascinating. They're, they're just absolutely, I you know I've only been to one really, but it's, it, it will, I will always forget it from the standpoint of all the flora and the fauna and, and you know the birds just flying and the water cascading all over the place. Everything's green. Uh, I really am fond of rainforest, no question about it.
3: Oh, I'm sure it's
2: beautiful. I can't imagine. And number five on this list is Portugal, one of the three countries in Europe, but uh, this is the only one that make the top five. The other three were in the top, other t- two were in the top 10. But one of the benefits of Portugal is they teach English in schools. So that makes well, it a, really easy. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah, that, that actually, I imagine, is much easier for us. <laughs> Apparently, hundreds of, hundreds of islands to visit and a lot of low-cost uh, restaurants with a variety of food. So that makes it, it, makes it a, a, also an attractive place to live. Well, and it's known as a foodie's
1: paradise. I certainly like the concept of good food and low prices. <laughs> Having done a little uh, this last weekend, lots of money spent on restaurants, right? It's just so expensive. Whether it's lunch or dinner it doesn't seem to, to matter anymore. I, I think the only place that's cheap are buses and McDonald's. Everything else is expensive Is
2: <laughs> all get out. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think you're right. So I mean, the, the, what what I like to emphasize is do do your planning because if you're thinking about moving out of the country and retiring somewhere overseas, uh, or down south, then you you want to do your research and see what it takes to actually get there from a visa standpoint, and then be able to afford to to live there.
1: Do you see a list of countries where there's a high influx of Social Security recipients who prefer retirement on foreign shores? Uh do, do you? Yeah, well, I yeah, Canada, Japan, Mexico, Germany, and the U.K. You probably won't save any money in the U.K. or Germany, but uh, the other ones. I, I and I am fond of. Uh, every time I've been to Canada, I've uh, always had a good time. They seem to welcome just about everyone, and even being on the the trams and the subways, uh, it's it felt like I was in the United Nations. I don't know where these people were from. I couldn't understand a word any of them were saying in their respective groups but they seem to respect and welcome everybody, no matter where they came from. Okay, so uh, that's the fun side of the equation. Then we'll get right to the more serious side in terms of this Delta danger uh, right after the break. Please stick around, folks, and we'll pick up with Dr. Richard Beswick along with Dr. Lynn Fitzgibbons on what they see thanks to the research and being infectious disease expert, as is Dr. Lynn Fitzgibbons, so that you get a sense for how to prepare for these surprises when it comes to our health conditions. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey.
4: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy.
0: Now, back to Fiscal Fitness.
1: Welcome back, folks. This is John Grace and Daniel Medina here at Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. So glad you could spend some time with us. And, of course, we're delighted that we have two special guests with us this afternoon for this segment regarding this Delta virus, okay, the the variant. And the various variants that seem to be exposing their ugly heads and doing the kind of damage that nobody ever imagined. I mean, You know, in the good old days, we had uh, the boogeyman, and you could just put a stick of dynamite somewhere and blow the boogeyman up and move you over and out. This thing has, uh, has been a disaster of epic proportions. It has a life of its own. It doesn't seem to have a heart. It doesn't seem to have a brain. And yet, it is life unlike we know it. And yet, life wants to expand, and it seems to be doing just that. So let me uh, give you a little bit of background, uh, because we, as you know, on this show, we like to get to the sources as well as we possibly can, because there's just a lot of dirt out there that people are throwing at each other as though they're facts. We prefer to separate fact from fiction as best we can. And the way we do that is to get to the folks who are actually on the front line doing the hard work to recognize what's going on here. We want to hear what their fears are, and we want to see what it is they see. And then we want them to tell us what we can do to keep our assets along with our bodies completely safe, because as I say, there's some scary things going on around here, okay? Uh, and just notice, it just recently, this is the US Centers for Disease Control uh, Director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, was speaking at the White House and she said, quote, we are seeing outbreaks of cases in parts of the country that have low vaccination coverage because unvaccinated people are at risk. And that's the part we really want to address because there are folks for a variety of reasons who want to continue being unvaccinated. Uh, And as I said to one of my loved ones just uh, over the weekend, you're being enormously selfish let's be clear about this okay so i i it's not my time to tell you how i feel we want to hear from uh richard beswick he's a phd at uh, cottage health he maintains executive oversight of all clinical research and basic science research with accountability for entire research budget management of direct reports he's engaged in all aspects of clinical research and then we are delighted that his uh colleague Dr. Lynn Fitzgibbons, who's an infectious disease expert at Cottage Health, is also on tap to help us understand exactly what she's seeing on a daily basis and what scares her. So let's just start here. You both can, um, we'll we'll start with Richard and then get to uh, Dr. Uh, Fitzgibbons, please. Is is the medical community trying to scare people over this COVID-19? Well, if, if you're starting with me, I'm going to say if, if
4: reality scares people, then the answer is yes. Because you know, no one is 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 telling someone that what we're seeing here is not true. You're, we're all seeing it in front of our eyes. So we're just reporting exactly what it is that we're seeing. And so that's that's not the objective of anyone in the medical community, or should I say
1: anyone, even in the research community. We're just trying to get an answer to this. Great. Dr. Fitzgibbons, what's your take?
3: I would agree entirely with Dr. Beswick. I think um, the, you know, the, the the question for the moment is um, perhaps not are we trying to scare people? It's is there something right now to be scared of? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, for me, the answer right now um, is um is probably yes, that there is certainly something to be concerned about and to be worried about. Um, but I always make sure that I kind of followed that comment with uh, reminding people that we need to harness and use that sentiment for um, for good, to be productive and to be constructive and to help us towards a solution rather than uh, the negative. We all, I think, uh, just to get this out there at the beginning of this conversation, we have all been through 18 months um, that have been unlike uh, really no other, uh, whether we're frontline healthcare workers um, or whatever sector we work in or within our communities. And I think at the end of the day, we have to remember that, uh, you know, what's ahead is, is going to be tough and a bit bumpy um, but you know we really um, are uh, ready to ready to handle it and I think uh, equipped to do so and again harness harness that concern in a constructive way would be my suggestion
1: ready to handle it well that's encouraging because uh, one of the things that I'm fond of saying is that in these United States of America we don't seem to be too busy learning from history because we're too busy repeating history and it seems in this case uh, we had the Spanish flu What was that uh, roughly a hundred years ago <laughs> And from what I can determine, the number of deaths is about equal with this COVID virus as it was with the Spanish flu. So what have we learned from that experience that we can apply to this one? And and I I gather that this may not be the first one in our lifetimes. It's just maybe a succession of events like this happening. What have we learned, Dr. Gibbons?
3: I think great question. I think that we we continue to see as a culture, as a society, as a global population these epidemics, pandemics of respiratory viruses, Um, and you know again, um, there there is a lot to be learned from looking back a hundred years, but I think there is a lot to also be learned from simply pointing out um, what a Different position we're in to be going through this pandemic through the tech era, and um, and I think that can't really be emphasized enough from my perspective, um, the fact that we are able to go through this summer um, knowing that, for example, the reason that suddenly we're having an influx of cases across the community, our hospitals are starting to get busier again, that this is all happening because of this Delta variant, um, you know, is of course an advantage that those 100 years behind us didn't have, and. And with that also comes the acceleration of um, therapeutics, of, of course, vaccines and other preventative technologies. So, again, I, I think that uh, looking back, uh, it's uh, it's somewhat, I think, worrisome to see that we are just repeating ourselves. But again, what's the opportunity? I think it is to point out that uh, we are in such a better position than, um, you know, our poor uh, ancestors 100 years ago.
1: Well, speak to that, please, Dr. Beswick, in terms of being in a better position. Is it the case that... Yeah. The work that's been done it wasn't in the last six months in fact uh, a lot of the work that's been done behind these uh vaccines have been under development for what 10 20 years is that correct
3: that's yeah, it that's it
4: go ahead go ahead um and yeah i agree 100 with what lynn is saying in terms of the technology that we're talking about here because if you if you look back to 18 months ago two years ago when we originally started this the sequence um, for this virus is already available online almost immediately when it first came out, which started the process of the vaccine development and the technology that we're seeing now. So we would not be in the position that we're in right now if we did not have all of this technology on board that's working to be able to identify it. The fact that we can say that this is a Delta variant or a Gamma variant or whatever the variant is that we're talking about is absolutely amazing because if you go back in time we were never able to do this prior to this time we didn't know what we were dealing with you know we can put together predictive models to be able to identify when we're going to see an increase in um, the rates of sickness in individuals you know we're able to uh, plan and prepare and create new vaccines as the as the mutations actually are occurring which is absolutely amazing something that we've never been able to do and, and, and that's because, you know, we have research, we have the clinicians, we have the pharmaceutical companies all working together as one team to create translational technologies, which is huge.
1: That's encouraging. So Dr. Fitzgibbons, what, what do you want to say about the timeline that has been uh, undertaken to get us to where we are with these particular vaccines? Some people think they just came out of nowhere in the middle of the night, and that makes them suspect because we rushed to market. What's your take?
3: I think it's a great question and it's one that, um, you know, at the beginning, I was very worried about myself. In infectious diseases, we have this kind of um, rule of thumb that vaccines take maybe seven to 10 years to develop a bit longer. You know, we, we heard some of this from our vaccine experts over the last several years. And so I think it's very important as we, you know, ask how did these vaccines come about so quickly, um, and how, you know, how how has this experience been different? Again, I, I lean back on my original comment that what we're going through, we have the good fortune of going through through the tech era. And so let me just talk about four or five specific places where this has essentially set a landscape where this vaccine has been developed um it's almost it's almost uh, apples to oranges when you compare it to any prior infectious disease vaccine so let me explain please as as they were trying to design these vaccines they actually used machine learning to look at the specific genome sequence within the virus that they wanted to target not only did they use that to figure out which parts of the genome they could replicate to make the vaccine to to make you know a, a good version of the vaccine to try to get a good response they actually used it for safety reasons also. They looked at what parts of the genome might mimic human genomes, might do something to trigger an immune reaction or an autoimmune reaction, Guillain-Barre syndrome, or one of these other, you know, very worrisome autoimmune complications that we've struggled with for decades with other vaccines. And they were able to use that even in the pre-clinical trial work as they were developing really the code for these vaccines. Remember that there is code in the mRNA vaccine, but there's also, of course, viral code in the DNA of the viral vector vaccines, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, etc. And so that takes us then to when they were rolling out the clinical trial. So they've now designed a vaccine that um, they, they are hopeful is going to work well, trigger a good response, but also be as safe as possible with more information than any scientists have ever had in vaccine development. And then they looked Well, where are we going to roll these vaccines out in clinical trials that we can give half the people a dummy, half the people this trial vaccine, and see the benefit? When we look at polio vaccines, we look at other vaccines, They had to do this in populations and then hope that the population will be exposed to the the disease so that they would see a difference in these two populations. They were actually, again, able to use technology, machine learning, AI, and other very sophisticated techniques to last March and April as they were anticipating where to put these clinical trials. They actually looked at what was predicted to be the most likely hotspot where they would see as quickly as possible a difference. This type of approach has never been feasible before. And then we move forward to simply the bureaucracy and the authorization, the emergency use authorizations. Again, given the gravity and the magnitude of the emergency last year, um, thankfully, Um, Those who are responsible for, you know, again, much of the red tape surrounding these barriers, Um, you know, there were no weekends, there was an application went in and it was expected to be worked on on the Friday afternoon, and not delayed until someone returned from vacation. So I think a lot of that also um, was was narrowed up. But from my perspective, the biggest advantage and it's and I'll just finish with safety. The other part that again, no other generation as they've dealt with a new vaccine has has had the good fortune to have, has been the fact that when I see a patient in the hospital with perhaps some unusual um, problem and they've recently had the vaccine, I can tell the CDC and within half an hour, someone has that information. The fact that every one of my colleagues around the country is doing the same thing means that our CDC, our health agencies have real time data on what kind of safety experiences people are having with the vaccines. So all this to say, forgive me, I used to be a high school teacher, so you give me a question, I can talk for an hour. But all this all this to say, I think um, it's a good question to ask, how did these vaccines come out so quickly? But we also have to remember that the environment that these vaccines have been developed and tested and now shown to be so very safe and effective is unlike any other.
1: Well, and uh, I'm glad you were a high school teacher because we, we we all got a lot of explaining to do around here. Right? <laughs> and people are trying to understand and I they think they're grappling in their own minds, but I think we're going to sources that aren't very solid. The foundation isn't very good. Maybe, uh, I know Daniel likes uh, numbers. So can you speak to the degree of uh, those who are contracting the backs of the disease who are unvaccinated versus vaccinated? And then of course, what are you seeing relative to the death rate? It seems like both numbers for the vaccinated are very low and the reverse for the unvaccinated.
3: That's right. So so I like to separate the question into into exactly the two questions you asked. So the first question is, for mild or moderate or asymptomatic disease, so so not hospitalized, not life-threatening, what kind of protection, what kind of ratio are we seeing between those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated? That 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 number has been a huge range in different populations as it's been studied um, more locally in our region that the factor I've heard is that those who are unvaccinated are perhaps 15 times more likely than those who, the, the, excuse me, those who are unvaccinated are perhaps 15 times more likely to have, you know, asymptomatic mild moderate disease. Um, And and again, that goes to the fact that vaccines are are not absolutely perfect in protecting us from mild or asymptomatic disease, um, but they do a really good job against that. Then the second question, I think, is perhaps as an infectious disease doc who works in the hospital every day um, and and also just, um, you know, following the epidemiology and the strains in our health system, the one that I worry the most about right now is what about the risk for people who are vaccinated versus unvaccinated who are being admitted to a hospital with severe disease Um, and and again that that links straight to to death rates and fatality risk and unfortunately as we've heard um, across of course regions of the United States um, and starting to see here in our own region we are um, unfortunately seeing that the vast majority of patients admitted to the hospital with severe or critically ill COVID-19 disease, primarily pneumonia, are happening in those who are unvaccinated. The rate, the exact number, to get to Daniel's um, request for exact numbers, because I also love numbers, um, is again highly variable. Um, and part of it is that the, the data is a little bit murky because you know, do we um, do we include? And this was talked about a lot in media in, in recent months. Do we talk about everyone who has a positive test who's coming in, or just people who are here exclusively for severe? COVID-19. The the data that I have personally experienced over this last couple of months has been that the people in the hospital with severe COVID-19 are somewhere around 80-90% of those people are unvaccinated, unfortunately. And that's, of course, a big difference than the approximately 50% of our community that is fully vaccinated.
1: Right, and you primarily serve—is uh, it Santa Barbara County? You're in Santa Barbara, right? Oh, yeah, Santa
3: Barbara County region. That's right. And but that—that that I think is being replicated across Los Angeles County, and that's a fairly similar experience across our region.
1: Well, I see that. Uh, looks like the cases are rising at all 50 states, including Washington D.C. And uh, as of earlier, just a week or two ago in July the average new cases were up 10% as as compared to a week ago. So, and some states 38 maybe are seeing at least a 50% increase according to CNN. So we'll talk more about that. We've got to go for a quick break, but let me say folks that please recognize that Daniel Medina and I are continuing to provide free financial planning services to all frontline workers. You do what you can to keep our bodies safe. We're gonna do what we can to keep your assets safe. So we'll be right back after a brief guest.
0: investors advantage corporation our trademark statement the proof is in the planning represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance coupled with a sound plan for the future with the challenges facing our country's frontline workers we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return to reward our nation's frontline employees and clients we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit YB4.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's YB4.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here.
1: Voice America
0: Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome
1: back, folks. John Grace and Daniel Medina here, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. So glad you could delve into this important topic, looking at this new variation of the virus and what it's doing. And But we're talking to the experts, Uh two doctors, one's a PhD, primarily around research, and the other is a medical doctor. And that's what they do. And in fact, uh, the medical doctor, Dr. Lynn Fitzgibbons, is an infection disease expert. So she's literally on the on the scene every day, looking at what's going on. And we've been talking about what's happening, not only in Santa Barbara County and, and Central Coast, as far as California is concerned, but uh, around the country, we're seeing huge increases with this variation of the virus. And as we said, it, it is unlike anything we've seen before. And it, it doesn't, it's not light life like we've known before, but it's clearly some form of life and it wants to expand. And unfortunately, we're leaving the back door open. So I know Daniel has some important questions he wants to
2: uh, pursue here. Well, the first one is specifically about the vaccine and you've talked to this a little bit, but there's a lot of misinformation going on. How necessary is it for everyone is and is there anything behind the government plot um, conspiracy theories. So then
4: I I can take some of this one. Um, So, as may or may not know I'm, I'm a part of a think tank of minority investigators from across the United States. And originally um, a year and a half ago when we jumped into this, one of the the ideas that we were going after was to really try to figure out why minority populations were were so hit by the COVID vaccine, or should I say the the virus itself. And we, we started to try to figure out how we could develop ways to Identified differences, but quickly, what we learned, especially when the the um, new vaccines came to market, that our direction was completely wrong. Our direction was really to try to battle the misinformation that's going out to different communities across the United States, and in particular, um, minority communities. As, as as we look forward, um, I I for a specific example, I can tell you that I have neighbors who who've come across to my door and actually knocked on the door and, and, and said, you know, I, I heard on the news that they're, they're going to put um, little bugs in the vaccines that's going to track all of us, which is absolutely incorrect, you know? And, and other people have said, if I take this, I'm going to be incredibly sick and, and things are going to be, you know, I'm going to have all of these complications that are associated with these vaccines. And that's the misinformation that we're having and the minority population, on the other hand, you know, African Americans, Hispanic, um, for a lot of the individuals that we have within our studies that we have ongoing now, they've said, you know, I'm not doing this because of the history and the trust that we're seeing based on things like Tuskegee. You know, my response to that is, is when the vaccines were created, this is a totally different situation, okay? When the vaccines were created, they did not come out as a vaccine that said this one is for African Americans, this one is for Hispanics, and this one is for whites. We are all in this together. We are all doing this together. The vaccine that I received is the same vaccine that Lynn is receiving, the same vaccine that um, Daniel is receiving. It's all exactly the same. The outcomes that we're actually seeing right now, as I tell um, the individuals that we're talking to, is the outcomes that we're seeing is across the entire United States, across the entire population. So it's not just minority populations, it's white, it's Hispanics, it's Asian. We're seeing the same exact things. And when you look at the data, um, in terms of the number of individuals that are being hospitalized that are um, minority-based, that's not something that you're seeing based on vaccines or because of the virus. What you're actually seeing is you're seeing um, issues that are that are more related to access to care, um, insurance, being an essential worker, um, various things like that that, that, um, that we're reporting here. It's not because of the vaccine. I, I don't know how many times um, in different groups, myself as well as the rest of the investigators on the group within our group have said, It's not a vaccine related issue that we're actually seeing. And the best way to protect yourself is to stop listening to the misinformation and to take the vaccine because the outcomes are so amazing. And we're seeing those right now. We're seeing exactly what Lynn was discussing that the majority of the individuals that are being hospitalized right now are the unvaccinated. It's not the unvaccinated African-Americans. It's not the unvaccinated whites is not the unvaccinated hispanics it's everyone in general who's unvaccinated
1: who is who we're seeing um, within the hospital it seems like part of the problem dr beswick and dr Fitzgibbons, is the ratio of minorities as far as medical professionals from what i can see looks like the percentage of doctors who are black for example has barely nudged in the last 120 years today we've got what. Fifty-six percent of active positions as white, seventeen as Asian, six percent identified as Hispanic, and all of five percent identify as Black or African American. Is that is that part of the disconnect here that the the folks who need to hear this message aren't getting it from the folks that they look like? That that that, that goes back into the trust issue, John.
4: And, right. And I think that that is something that has to do with um, a systemic kind of racism thing, but overall, when you look at someone who's going to a white physician, African American physician, there is no difference in terms of the 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 treatment that you're receiving in terms of these vaccines. Okay, so you're not going to go to an African American physician and get a different vaccine that's specific for African Americans. You're not going to go to a white physician and get a vaccine that as an African-American that's specific for, so, you know, that shouldn't really matter. I mean, the issue that you're discussing are issues that are systemic issues that have been there over a period of time that we cannot attribute to what we're seeing now in terms of the uh, the vaccination process. We need better information, we need more people on the ground talking to these different communities, Um, we need, Folks like myself, who's, who's African American, to be out there talking and saying, "Yes, what we're seeing is what I just discussed, and the vaccine is the right way to go in order to be able to protect yourself as well as your family."
2: On based on the new variants that we're hearing, we're hearing all everything we're hearing now is about Delta and how much more contagious is it. Is is it really that much more contagious, and why?
3: I can take this one. Um, Yes, it, the the Delta variant has uh, now clearly established itself as the most contagious variant that we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. Wow.
1: Um
3: forgive the dark the dark metaphor, but uh an infectious disease um physician last week referenced it as the gold medal winner of the the variant race. Um it is able to create very high viral loads within an infected person. And what that means is, as if I get infected with with one of the prior variants, I'll make a certain amount of virus. And some of that virus, of course, stays in me, but some of that virus is then contagious to other people. If I'm infected with the Delta variant, I'm going to make many times more, more virus in my body. Some of it, again, will stay in my body and cause me to feel sick but much of it will spread out and be more infectious. And Daniel, your question's actually being studied by infectious disease folks around the world as we speak. And we're actually seeing some hint that not only is Delta um, Delta's ability to transmit so much more efficient and so much better um, than any of the other variants, but it actually looks like it it may behave differently because of that. And what I mean by that is the incubation period, the time from when someone's exposed to when they fall ill, for the prior variants, we thought was approximately five days, five, six days. Um, Interestingly, there's some early data, the incubation period, that, that period of time for the Delta variant infections, is actually as short as four days. Now that doesn't sound like such a big deal, but what this reminds us is that Delta really is um, behaving in a way that's quite different than any of the prior variants. An offshoot of the contagious question, because um, I think that the quick answer, I am longer winded, but the quick answer to your question is yes, Delta is far more contagious. It is the most contagious by far, but then is, okay, so it's more contagious, more people are gonna get it, it's gonna spread quicker, But is it going to make more people or a higher percentage or fraction of people sicker? That, that question is actually a remarkably difficult one to answer because if you think about it, the group, the population, in any part of the world that we're studying Delta in is different than where we've studied the other variants. The, the level of vaccine protection is of course different than it was six months or a year ago. The, um, the types of people that are vulnerable to infection are different. Um, and so hospitalization rates and fatality rates are going to notoriously just be very difficult to compare. Um, and there, there's actually some discrepant reports around the world with regards to the severity question. From an infectious disease perspective a rule of thumb, I would say that we should not be worried that the Delta variant is going to ultimately be shown to be wildly different than the prior variants for causing people to be in the hospital or case fatality rates. We just have to remember that we're comparing different populations of people when we're comparing to the prior variants. Hmm.
2: And, Go ahead. What okay. does that really mean? Does it does that mean it's more dangerous, less dangerous, or is it's just about the same?
3: I think for, what we know right now is it's it's not significantly different. But there was, for example, a report out of Public Health Scotland that said that people who were infected with Delta were more likely to be hospitalized than people infected with B one one seven, uh, the Alpha variant. Now again, the populations are different. Um, so there, What's that? So it's very hard, hard
0: to really. get
1: it. Yeah, it's, it's hard, hard to, hard to tell that. at this point.
3: But what I can tell you is, as as someone who's caring for a lot of patients with Delta and cared for a lot of patients with Alpha and a lot of patients with Epsilon, a lot of patients with all of the prior variants, I don't. None of us are feeling like there's a huge shift in severity of illness. Um, it's just the the biggest, most profound thing about this is how infectious and how contagious it is. Hmm.
1: So clearly, the best protection is to be vaccinated. Absent that, what's the backup plan?
3: I can take this one, Richard. Or <laughs> we can both take a, a stab at it. I think um, uh, vaccination is by far your best protection, um, and so I think if uh, if anyone is yet to be fully vaccinated, um, vac- <laughs> immunized, vaccinated, vaccinated, um, I would strongly recommend that you please, uh, you know, please learn as much as as you need to learn to, you know, to to go ahead and get vaccinated. Um, in addition to being vaccinated, um, I think being cautious about being around big groups of people um, as Delta circulating um, would be very wise. I think uh, I'll say that when I'm around um, big groups of people who may or may not be ill, may, may or may not have been fully exposed, or fully protected or exposed to Delta in the past, I, I wear a mask now um, indoors, um, outdoors. I feel quite safe outdoors. I feel that the risk is low, but I think indoors, um, when you're around people, you don't know their you know their, their situation. I think a mask makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I think, um, you know, listening to your local public health officials for their recommendations for what's right for your community um, would be my final suggestion. Richard, I don't know if you had anything to modify or add or edit.
4: I think you covered it, you know, like you said, I think the other, the second best way is to, Uh, make sure you wear a mask while you're inside. Like Lynn, I feel very safe when I'm outside, but once I'm inside, it's a whole different ballgame.
2: And you would say whether you're vaccinated or not, it's probably best to wear a mask. Yes, whether you're vaccinated or not.
3: That's a, yeah, that's a great question, Daniel. So, um, So that's shifted. Um, if, uh, you know, if the community prevalence is really, really low and you're very unlikely to, to bump into this variant and it's very li- unlikely to be, you know, high, you know, high amount of transmission just occurring. Um, then the vaccine by itself, you know, gives us a lot of protection. This was the, the reason behind the public health shift about six or eight weeks ago towards, you know, not needing masks indoors if you're fully vaccinated. What's changed between now and then two things. We understand so much more about how infectious Delta is, but we also know that the community prevalence is much higher. So as I walk into a grocery store in my community today, I know simply that there's a moderate chance that someone in there has this has this virus, has this variant, and I'm potentially gonna be exposed indoors. So that, that's, I think, uh, one of the things that shifted that I think are making a lot of people uneasy or ask questions, um, and that's the rationale behind it.
1: How's the color of coronavirus is it still the case that the people of color, particularly African Americans and Pacific Islanders are being the are, are the two groups that are being the most adversely affected.
4: You know, I think that the adverse effect that, that you're talking about here is because if you look at those two particular groups, they're the, the group that has the lowest vaccination. rate. And what we're seeing right now, once again, is that the folks who we're seeing in the hospital are the folks who are unvaccinated. So if you look at the, the recent numbers from uh, July of 2021 from the CDC, it says that African Americans and Hispanics, African Americans are 36%, um, you know, at least uh, uh, partially or fully vaccinated. Um, Hispanics are 41%. Um, we're seeing exactly uh, what we would see in the beginning play out. The folks who are not vaccinated, who have no treatment, are the Folks um, that we're seeing in the hospital, um, in, in terms of the majority. If you are in the lower realm of this, we would expect that we would see more African Americans, more Hispanics being seen at the hospital, because we're not vaccinated. And that's what we were talking about earlier: is to get the push out and get more information, and get rid of this misinformation that we're seeing out there on the web and in the media, um, and try to build trust in these two particular communities.
1: All right. Well, folks, we're going to leave it there. We certainly want to thank Dr. Liz Fitzgibbons, M.D., and Dr. Richard Beswick, a Ph.D., and we want to sp- are so glad that you could spend some time with us. And we hope that uh, this was a good use of, er- of your time. It certainly was a good use of our time. And for our audience, we'd love to have you come back. As I say, this is a disaster of epic proportions. It's not done yet. And so far, it seems to be doing uh, just about what it wants to do. <laughs> and we're leaving the back door open. So, folks, we, we're, we're always trying to do what we can to help you prepare for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. This one is uh, seeable and there are things that we can do to keep our assets along with those other dear parts as safe as we possibly can. So uh, this is uh, John Grace and Daniel Medina here on Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. We'll be right back here Wednesday from 12 to one Pacific time. Same bat station, same bat channel. We'll see you then. Thanks so much for joining us.